This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. In this week's episode, we're going to be hearing about A Gentleman of Istanbul. It's a new work by Mehmet Ali Sanlikal. He wrote it for the Boston ensemble A Far Cry. It's really a fascinating piece of music, and it kind of tells the life of this composer, if you will, as well. You'll find out how on this week's edition of New Classical Tracks. From American Public Media, I'm Julia Macher. Let's start off by just having you introduce yourself. What would you like us to know about you? Um, I originally come from Turkey, and I've been in Boston for the past 30 years. Um, I've come here to study jazz, although my um, initial training was in classical piano. My mother is a classical piano teacher, but I have gotten into uh, first progressive rock music in my teens, and then um, that connected me with jazz eventually. And um, this is in the late 80s when I heard about a school called Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and I somehow found the courage to write a handwritten letter to them, uh, which got me uh, a couple years later in, in Boston. And so I've been I've been here. I uh, did uh, jazz composition and film music uh, studies at Berkeley as an undergrad student. Started uh, an electric jazz band. Started touring. But my passion for classical, Western classical composition also uh, remained with me. Uh, And so after I did that, I went to New England Conservatory, which is where I teach right now. And uh, while at New England Conservatory, I slowly started going in two different directions. One was... Uh, early European music and uh, neoclassical composers. And the other direction was Turkish music, which was kind of surprising because when I left Turkey, I really didn't think that I was going to have anything to do with that country anymore, (laughs) Um, mainly because I was so hungry for, you know, jazz music and composition and so on. But To make a long story short, I came back to my roots seven years after arriving in Boston, and that was a life-changing moment in my life because I kind of stopped doing everything and started intensely studying Turkish musics and culture and history because I realized that, uh, first of all, in our household, there was no traditional Turkish musics when I grew up. It was all around me, obviously, but basically, when I reconnected with that, uh, with my own culture, I kind of realized that I was almost self-alienated, self-orientalized, and so it, it was a, a very important moment. So it rightfully took about ten years for me to to come out of it, and what I mean by that is, I started picking up a number of traditional music instruments, studying them 
in addition to piano, and started singing professionally, more so in that uh, traditional classical Turkish music style. And um, I mean, it's it's a long story, but basically it was around 2011 or so when I relaunched my career as a composer and jazz musician too, at which point I think I, I had developed a, a, a more confident and unique voice as a composer. Wasn't there a simple Turkish folk song that really kind of turned the tide for you after you arrived in the U.S.? Yes, indeed, yes. Um, so it was, like I said, it was seven years after. So at that point in time, I had already completed my uh, dual degree at Berkeley and my uh, master's degree at New England Conservatory. Or, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I was about, I was just in my last semester. It was, in fact, either January or February of the year 2000 when I, I just in the background heard... Um, the music of the Ottoman Janissary, the so-called Ottoman Janissary bands. Uh, th that was kind of, it's not the kind of music that, you know, most secular Turks are going to sit down and listen to. Um, and so it was, in fact, a friend of mine who was basically uh, joking with us. And, and so uh, just to get us to laugh, believe it or not, is when he put that music on. And, and back then, as you can imagine... Downloading MP3s took a while, right? So he had downloaded this one track, but then there were others. And we said, okay, you know, let it be, let it, you know, let it, let the computer just download MP3s. And so um, during the course of those few hours, I started, I think, subconsciously tuning in, which allowed for all of my cultural filters to be lifted. And, and so you know, I, I kind of was listening to, I mean, of course, I can't tune out. So I keep listening. And then eventually there were like these two songs, two folk songs. <clears throat> and one of them really started pulling me in. And I'll tell you, the reason why I got stuck with it was because I was trained to hear the Do, you know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, the do, the center of gravity as we think of it in tonal music from a Western classical perspective, meaning, you know, if you hear a, a certain chord, etc., you know, your ear will find the, 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 the central pitch of Do. So I kept looking for that Do, and it didn't exist in the music. I mean, mind you, at this point in time, you know, I was about to graduate from the master's program. You know, I was a very good student, um, touring all around the world, uh, playing with a lot of jazz giants, and and either I was accepted to the doctoral program or was just about to get accepted to the doctoral program of at NEC. So you can imagine, you know, I was a little full of myself, and so you know, so I, I you know, I, I I couldn't hear that that pitch though. I mean, it literally was not, by the way, in the song, like it didn't exist, and so. I felt really odd because it's an, a very tiny little folk song from where I come from. So it was almost like I was getting defeated, you know, after years of, you know, accomplishments and, and you know, um, feeling good about myself as a composer and performer from by just by a simple folk song 
you know, not being able to find the tonic that I was so trained to do so <laughs> um, after so many years. And so that, I think, did something very deep. It made you want to dig into it further is what it sounds like, right? You wanted to, like, I got to find this. Like, it set you out on some kind of a journey, maybe? Yeah, yeah. It definitely set me on some sort of a journey, uh, a kind of a journey that had a lot to do with identity as well. I think I think that's why it was so deep and it was so moving and it was so engaging. I think if some anyone asked me at that point in time, I don't think I could articulate it as well. But I know that it had a lot to do with identity and because I you know, I did call myself a Turkish person, but I I came to realize that that was a very incomplete uh incomplete way of addressing myself. So so it just started untangling all kinds of things. Suddenly, I started questioning everything about, everything from Islam to music to my name, even Mehmet Ali. Like, why are these two together? You don't really see it in most Islamic countries. It's either Muhammad or Ali, but in my case, it's the, like all these, all these very fundamental questions. And so, I'll just I'll just tell you this last. I, I started um, going to the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard and, and started taking Ottoman history classes. They allowed me to audit, etc. Like, you know, it, it really was, <laughs> it really was quite a journey. And I was just, as you were talking about the Janissary band sound, it made me think of Mozart, actually. You know, I always got that Turkish rondo because that was such a popular sound back in the, the 18th century. Is that something that ever resonated with you? Did you play that? And did it... Of course. It didn't have the same impact, though, probably, it sounds like. Well, I'll, uh, no, 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 it did not. But I'll tell you... Um, uh, it was one of the first things that I, I, I mean, not one of the first things, but as soon as I was able, I asked for, uh, from my mom to teach it to me because, you know, most everyone knows the Aloturka Rondo as Turkish March. And so, you know, lots of Turks kind of become curious about that piece too, like early on. And, and it's a beautiful piece. So, you know, you're like, oh, I want to play Mozart's Turkish March, you know, but, um, you know, I, I I don't think one is ever quite able to make that musical connection. And um, later in life, by the way, I actually did um, write a book on the, the musician Mehters and, and got it published. So a short section of that book is about the European legacy of these uh, Mehter musicians. And so I did become more informed about the Mozart connection and the Beethoven connection and Gluck and all of those composers. Mehmet, you refer to yourself as a composer who can speak multiple musical languages by not reducing or standardizing, but fully honoring them. How do you do that? Well, it's because um, I, I got to uh, uh, learn these musical languages fully. I mean, I didn't necessarily have a master plan <laughs> and, and said to myself, you know, back in the late 80s, okay, I'm first going to learn this and that. And it didn't happen like that. Somehow life, you know, got me through um, this adventure. Um, but... Uh, first, I grew up with Western classical piano. Then I went on to to really internalize the jazz language, uh, and then somehow I got into 
classical Ottoman Turkish music and related traditional musics. And I, God knows, I gave at least a decade to playing all of that and to learning all of it really fully uh, with masters and 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 also. Um, you know, being at New England Conservatory throughout my doctorate and 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 my master's years, you know, I, I got to study with great concert music composers like Lee Hyla. And um, not many people may remember, but Dan Pinkham, who was also a very important composer, uh, he was my teacher. And I learned a lot of early music, early European music, um, polyphony from him. Uh, and a couple other professors. And then um, I got hired by the Boston Camerata. I worked with them for 10 years. So, yes, I, I have internalized all of these languages. And because of who I am, the kind of person that I am, it was not just internalization on practical, you know, uh, uh, methods of just playing and, and doing gig after gig. No, I, I actually, you know, wrote articles. I did research. I just That's just who I am. So it was never just about, you know, oh, wow, this sounds great. You know, I, I, I'll learn this tune and I'll move on. It was never like that. So, yes, I, I so I don't, I you know, I came to a point in my life where, when I hear uh, reductionist performances, cliches, orientalisms, exoticisms, well, I, I can recognize them easily. And so um, I stay away from them in my undertakings. And instead, um, I try to honor these musical languages. And, and I think I started seeing myself as a good translator, you know, think about translating poetry, the hardest thing to do, right? Or just some idiomatic sayings. I think music is full of idioms, right? If you think about it, you know, there are so many idiomatic things about styles and, and certain, you know, the way we're able to tell a certain thing from early 18th century melodic statements versus, you know, late Baroque, like, it's all about these kinds of subtleties and, and, and musical um, idioms. And so, well, I can recognize them. Therefore, I can think of, you know, uh, their, their, their best possible equals in other languages, in other musical languages. And so, you know, it's not so much about stitching things together, but it is more about hearing these things and being able to you know, translate them well, I, I think. This new recording, A Gentleman of Istanbul, features a commission by a Far Cry orchestra. How did this commission come about? Um, so, um, shortly after I returned, um, or I was able to relaunch my career as a composer, um, a Far Cry string orchestra approached me and they asked uh, whether I would be interested in, you know, working with them. This was at the time for a different um, album or a concert program, which became the Dreams and Prayers album, uh, which was nominated for a Grammy back in 2015. And so that was a great start. They played the piece I wrote for that album called Vegged numerous times. And, and it remains a, a wonderful memory. Uh, for a number of reasons. And, and so our, our connection was strong. Um, 
at one point we discussed um, another collaboration, and so this commission came forward. And at the time they said, well, Mehmet, we want you to go find what you're passionate about and do it. We don't want to. We don't want to name what you should be composing. It's better if you actually tell us what you. So that was the nature of the commission, which was unbelievable. Not many organizations or, or orchestras do that, and so um, it wasn't that difficult for me to think about a theme because right at that time, Donald Trump had come forward with his Muslim ban talk. And so, uh, and and it wasn't in response to that because you know most everyone that I know and I'm surrounded with was, you know, up in arms about that anyway. But what was really surprising to me was how a lot of people who are out there looking to defend Muslims happened to be putting out images that were stereotypes in defense of Islam. So, for example, you know, everyone was like, no to the Muslim ban. What image do you have? A, a, a woman covered with headscarf. All right, I, I'll, I'll roll with that a little bit. And then, however, you know, um, a newspaper article comes out in a big paper. You know, major paper. And then, what do you have? A bunch of men over prayer rugs. This just, just kept hitting me one after the other. And then at one point I said, come on, you know, this is not right. This is reductionism. This is, this is almost, you know, like um, representing a, a vast geography. I mean, Islamic geography is huge from Morocco all the way to Indonesia. I mean, and considering the, you know, the quote-unquote the diasporas, it's the entire world. I mean, it's it's a huge religion. And, and you're reducing that culture to just the mosque and a headscarf that's really unfair and so i thought that come on there is sufism you know the the mysticism in islam there are secular muslims there are all kinds of different you know and so i said this is this is not right the way to defend you know if you're out to defend some population so i said hold on let me show you cosmopolitanism within Islam. And so I went to this person that I know from 17th century, mid-17th century, this fantastic Ottoman intellectual Muslim traveler from mid-17th century Istanbul. His name is Evliya Çelebi. So I thought if I pick um, several excerpts from his travelogue, you know, I may be able to show um, the kind of cosmopolitanism that I rarely come across these days. I want you to tell me about this character and how you relate to him, because I know you're seeing him kind of, or you're seeing yourself maybe as a 21st century Muslim traveler. Give me the the lowdown on how the two of you are connected, if you will. Well, the, the initial connection, you know, happened when I heard his name and, and his adventures, even as, as a little kid. But then um, those were not, you know, I just had known of him. But then um, when I was researching for uh, the uh, so-called Ottoman Janissary Band music for that book that I was working on, a professor 
of mine at Harvard had suggested that I actually go directly to Evliya Celebi's travelogue and, and just go through. And it's a huge, I mean, it may very well be the longest travelogue ever written. So it's not easy to, to go through it. Um, but there was a scholarly publication of it that had just come out. And so I started checking those out from Harvard's library and going through them. As I was doing that, I started seeing this incredible man who who had all of these very different sides to himself. So you would be reading just one page and and on that page he would start out uh first with very detailed observations about Oh, for example, you know, the steps going up the Kaaba in Mecca, for example, you know, detailed observations or or um, the passage that I picked, um, like the, the automatic clocks and bell towers in Vienna. You know, super detailed, you know, great observer. So almost like a scientist, right? But then... You know, once that paragraph is over, maybe he thinks that, you know, okay, enough, enough detail for my reader. Let me just entertain them a little bit. And then he moves into almost like a, a fictional story um, about vampires, for example, that, that perhaps the kind that was being told to entertain people at coffee houses in Istanbul back then. You know, and so he takes that kind of a role on. Yes, of course, because it's a big travelogue and you want to kind of make sure that your readers are being engaged. And then he would become an epic storyteller and then he would give you these Homeric, you know, uh, almost almost myth like stories, exaggerated but true. And then at one point, if he's going to give you some historical information, again, like about one of the passages that I picked on Alexander the Great, he will cite sources. He'll tell you according to this, according to that. So, that, that I mean, and, and he has an accessible Ottoman Turkish um, language at the time. And so, it was fun to read him. And, and you learn, you get entertained, you laugh. I said to myself... Who, what kind of person is this? I mean, this is just amazing. And so um, I guess uh, as far as I am concerned, I just related to him because I really liked everything about it. I mean, I, I thought, wow, you know, Muslim? Wow, what kind of, you know, it's not, it sure is not the kind of Muslim people think about, you know, when, when, when we discuss. And so I thought, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I love his work. I love his stance, you know. It's interesting because he's from the 17th century, and it makes me think as you're talking about this, I mean, he was a devout Muslim, opposed to fanaticism, and he actually joked freely about Islam in the 17th century. So those kind of things wouldn't be accepted now, right? Am I right about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, that's the whole, I guess, in a way, that's my point, too. There are certain communities in, in this vast Islamic geography, like the household that I grew up. I mean, my dad, you know, would take me to uh, the evening prayers, uh, not every night, but through, if it was throughout Ramadan, we may go and drop by at the mosque. However, you know, my dad never prayed at home or, you know, we would freely drink liquor and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I think I think those kinds of attitudes still exist. However, the fact that, you know, he was devout, but at the same time, he had 
a lot of room for all kinds of Sufi uh, dervishes too. And so that's the cosmopolitanism that I'm talking about. It, it's, you know, it, it is striking. It is striking, um, especially when you think that this is a 17th century travelogue. All right, let's talk about this music that you've created because it blends traditional Turkish, Western classical, jazz. Oh, this is all you, all the things <laughs> that you have done. And through this work, you're celebrating the rich history and the cultural diversity within Islam. So how is that coming through in the music? Um, so, again, the model was Evliya Çelebi himself, you know, because he is as diverse, you know, in his um, travelogue. So I thought I got to find a really uh, striking and, and a, a diverse manner to represent him. First, I selected four different sections out of the travelogue. The first one was uh, the clocks and bell towers of Vienna. And, and so um, it was it was easy to kind of relate and, and go in a, a Bartokian, uh, uh, Mahlerian kind of way and, and approach that first uh, movement a little bit more, quote-unquote, classically, if you will. Um, and, and yet, I mean, I am playing the oud um, as the, the featured soloist in that, in that first movement. In any case, then there's, but there is, for example, in the middle of that first movement, which strictly, by the way, follows the sonata form, um, in the middle of it, there is a fugue as well. So there, there really is, you know, a sense of Vienna that I, that I found different ways to, to, to bring it in. But then the, uh, the, the second movement where he um, talks about the death of an Ottoman sultana. He becomes so melancholic and so dramatic and so Homeric in his tone. I, I thought, how can I relate to, you know, this mood, this melancholic mood? And so I, I thought that, again, I thought about Istanbul. And, and I thought the kind of uh, violet or, or purplish kind of tones that you see uh, that gets reflected on the Bosphorus right around sunset and and how I have that this image in my mind of crossing the the Bosphorus with a ferry at that hour and seeing the seagulls kind of fly in front of the Hagia Sophia or Blue Mosque I had these images and then I thought that's jazz <laughs> I said that's that I'm going to score a jazz ballad And I, I didn't, you know, normally 
to put forward, a, 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 and I call this a symphony because structurally it really is. Um, normally, if I'm approaching that kind of a work, you know, I would shy away from, you know, being so stylistically adventurous from one movement to another. You know, being influenced is one thing to really put on the brakes and jump from, you know, jazz to uh, Sufi music to this and that, you know, that, that is, that is, you know, that are, those are striking, but that's exactly, that was exactly my intention because Evliya is striking because I'm making a very strong statement here about, again, this man, Islam in general. And so I said, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to and, and write a jazz ballad. And, and then the third movement is, is the, the, the funniest passage because I think, I mean, I guess this one is made up. It has to be. So he says that he, while he's traveling in northern Sudan or southern Egypt, he suddenly um, goes into this passage where he says he sees two Bektashi Sufi dervishes, which is an order from central Turkey. So he, he says he sees these two dervishes. One is riding a rhinoceros and the other one is um, on like a mule-like animal with um, uh, horns by the ears. And, and, and so he converses with them and he finds out that they're vegetarian and that's why they were permitted by the animals. So I was like... What's going on? But it was so entertaining. I mean, and to this day, when I go back to that, like, it puts a smile on my face and it's fantastic. And I do mean it. Like, it's like fantasy. It's like, I don't know, like a passage out of Star Wars, right? You know, seeing different kinds of um, creatures, etc. And so, so I was like, wow, you know, let me go into the fantasy world with, with Sufi dervishes. And so... For that movement, I assigned the, the, the instrument, the ne, which is the emblem of the so-called whirling dervishes in Turkey. And so I played that instrument and, and uh, scored it in a way where, it's, it, it, to me at least, it has a kind of a light but a mysterious feeling throughout. And, and then the final movement is about Alexander the Great, which is, I think, the striking of them all, if not necessarily musically, but, well, even maybe musically, because it's more adventurous than any of the others. First of all, at that point in time, most Muslims, at least in the Ottoman world, believed that Alexander the Great was a prophetic figure named Zulkarnain mentioned in the Quran. So they actually believed that Alexander was a prophet of Islam. Okay? I mean, that, to begin with, is kind of super striking. Secondly, Zulkarnain 
literally means two-horned. And there are, by the way, even from the ancient Greek period of, of sculptures of Alexander showing him with horns, which from what I understand were signs of power, this, that, you know, um, but, but the transmission of it happened so that eventually, you know, this connection was made. And anyhow, um, Zulkarnain is mentioned in, in the Quran uh, as the person who goes and defeats Gog and Magog. And there are a lot, a lot of romances, Alexander's romances, as you may know from Europe, which recount a similar uh, story. So basically, there's a lot, you know, for these people to have made that association. And so um, he has these passages where he talks about Alexander being in deep thought and deep pain due to his horns and that his doctors was not able to, they were not able to find a cure for him and so on. So I, I had this image again in my mind and I, I scored that uh, movement a little bit more freely than the typical symphonic structure. It has some film music quality, I think, and then it has some, you know, so-called new music quality. Um, it definitely, you know, uh, makes connections with music of Penderecki and uh, composers like that. But basically, all in all, the entire work is really based on and quite uh, loyally to the very 18th century classical symphonic structure. And there's also a point in that final movement where the instruments stop and you chant a verse from the Quran, and that makes me think that this is connected to Alexander the Great as the story you were just telling me about. Yes, because Evliya in his travelogue makes that reference very much so. And so I, you know, if there's a theme running through this composition, it's about being bold and striking in, in these statements. So... I thought that theologically, I was not, I, I shouldn't be offending anyone because there is no music that accompanies the Quranic recitation, which is how it should be. I improvised it, uh, and so that also follows tradition. Nevertheless, it is in the middle of a symphony. So that is, you know, <laughs> outside of, of tradition for sure. <laughs> When the members of A Far Cry first saw this score on their music stands, what was their reaction? Well, by then they, they knew me well. But I do remember 
you know, when I broke the news to them that I was going to play a different instrument in each movement and, and recite the Quran, they, they were all kind of, they smiled. They smiled, but they, they were like, okay, this is Mehmet. You know, he can do this. And, you know, but it was, a, you know, it was a moment we all kind of shared, you know. Um, but they were, they were always very much in support of it and behind the idea. And, and so that was very comforting and, and really soothing to know. You've been performing this work for a few years now. I found a review from, I think, at least maybe five years ago now. How does it feel to finally be releasing it on a recording? Right. Um, So we have done, um, if I'm not mistaken, five performances of it when we premiered it. And you're right. It was five years ago when we premiered it in 2018. We we definitely wanted to release it much quicker, you know, record it and release it. But uh, pandemic intervened, and and um, some of the promised funds ended up having to wait. And so, um, well, I feel great. I really do. First of all, to be collaborating with a Far Cry is a true blessing. They're my, I mean, a good number of them by now I consider friends, but also. They have such a special approach to music, and and our relationship is so special. It's not cold at all. It's not like walking into an orchestral reading or or you know two rehearsals and there it is. And that too, you know, I mean, when it happens beautifully, that too is a blessing. Don't get me wrong, but but this this is a different sort of relationship where you know you do get to talk about the music in greater detail and that you see them discuss certain things between you know amongst themselves and 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 so you get a a, i got a world-class performance and so i'm really grateful about that mamet in creating this work what did you discover about yourself um what did i discover about myself um well that I, I really do care for some of these principles and 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 um, whether whether they're related to Islam or about musical integrity that I I prefer to stand my ground uh, rather than going in in some of these orientalist or reductionist possible representations even if they were to bring me some sort of recognition quicker because i i did turn my back on those kinds of opportunities a couple of times and and made my stance clear so i i'm not saying that this is one of them but um i'm saying that there has been occasions where i have been proposed to do things which i thought was which, which I think people would have not, you know, would they would, you know, like regular audiences would have thought that, oh, wow, you know, look at this person, how wonderful, how this, how that, how beautiful, how exotic. But, but I think it, it is our, our duty, I think, as, as people who have studied, who, who are learned people, and, and we're, we're, in, we're in a position where, you know, we are supposed to be providing information the kind that is more informed. So if I don't fulfill that properly, I think that's just wrong. And so as someone living in the States for 30 years now, I feel that I have a number of responsibilities, especially after so many years of 
teaching and playing and so on. And I, I know that I cannot, you know, be the savior here <laughs> all by myself. I won't, you know, I'm just, I'm just Mehmet, you know, but, but I'll do my part, you know, I'll fight the good fight as long as I can and in the best way that I can. And this is one of the best ways that I can. continues with Mehmet Ali Sanlikol and A Far Cry. The recording is called A Gentleman of Istanbul. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.